Hi everyone. Welcome to the podcast Choices. In today's episode, I'll be joined by our guest based out of UK, Alexander, to discuss a very important geopolitical issue of our times, that is Ukrainian crisis. So let's start. here we've, we've had mass mandates but those are being lifted now i think they're probably being lifted earlier than in other countries you have uh, and then i think uh, russian have made use of this covid and china of course they these two these these two powers have made use of this covid pandemic at uh, most you know to their benefit uh, if i if i see from you know geopolitical perspective they they sold i sold and red chai russia and then uh you know china already did uh, sort of that uh, you know uh, skirmishes border skirmishes with india you know you you have written about it right i recall the galwan incident right 2020 so i know if i uh, induce america in this whole thing right us so uh, do you think like the biden administration is like you know more effective in you know uh, handling this geopolitical issue or vis-a-vis trump or do you think like trump could have uh, you know if if would be president right um, have some sort of edge over russia's situation pretty much well do you think so regarding regarding ukraine yeah you yeah of course you can in crisis oh, okay between the okay yeah um so there has actually been a, a relatively high degree of continuity between the Biden administration and Trump's administration in terms of foreign policy yeah to some extent um it's probably one of the few areas that is some bipartisan agreement on still between the Democrats and Republicans because every other issue in Congress is becoming incredibly partisan uh the interesting thing about the Trump administration's relationship with Russia is that the majority of republicans took quite a hawkish attitude towards Russia which is which is what we'd expect from uh not just the republicans but really uh US senators in general but Trump on the other hand was often quite apologetic for Russia um and was certainly quite complimentary to uh Putin uh on on more than one occasion uh and and that's an area where he kind of bumped heads with uh other members of the Republican party so if Trump is in power now it would be very interesting to see whether Trump was on board with the rest of the Republican party and taking quite a hawkish attitude towards what the Russians doing in Ukraine or or whether you'd have that um disconnect between what the president um is saying and then what the rest of the Republican party is saying and, and by extension the rest of the US government is saying um at least with Biden uh, there's a fair degree of consistency between what he's saying and what most of the democrats are saying um obviously there's been quite a bit of criticism uh towards uh Biden taking quite an impotent uh, approach so Biden quite recently said uh I'm, I'm paraphrasing here but Essentially if Russia didn't launch a obvious conventional attack on Ukraine then it would be down to the west really to uh, I think he's actually words were to to fight out what to do so those wasn't exactly inspire confidence in um 
certainly the Eastern European countries, but also some of the more hawkish elements um, in the White House. Uh, so I think there is a perception from some, at least, that Biden has been quite impotent in his response to what's going on in Ukraine. It hasn't been a particularly strong response, and it, it hasn't... It hasn't been a particularly clear response either. There, there hasn't been the US hasn't drawn a red line of what it will do um, if Russia invades. Yeah. They, they've said, "Oh, you know, we'll, we'll bring down sanctions on you, or essentially we'll make this painful for you." But they haven't really said what exactly it is they will do, and they haven't said what what is the red line that Russia would have to cross, other than just a full scale conventional invasion really for, for the U.S. to do something. So there's a lack of clarity, I think, coming from the U.S. And, and by extension the Western response right now. Do I think this would have been different under Trump? Probably not. Because I think the U.S. is still... It's, it's facing this problem whereby obviously they don't want to... Uh, lose Ukraine, per se. They don't, yeah. they don't want Ukraine to fall firmly under the Russian rule. It's, it's not something they want to see happen. But at the same time, I do not think there is an appetite in Washington whatsoever to fight a conventional war with Russia over Ukraine. I, that, that, there is not the political will to do that. So I think if the Republicans were still in office, if Trump was still there, there would still be the same head-scratching moment of, well, how far do we take this? How much do we care about Ukraine? And, and how much do you want to escalate things for this part of the world? Yeah. Yeah, but like, but I have slightly different thing. I think like Trump is sort of a deal maker, you know, you see uh, it, he reaches out to, uh, you know, the North Korea, you know, he has some sort of good sort of relation with Putin. I would, so I think this, uh, as, a, as a, you know, as an individual side, you know, Trump has some sort of like, you know, he's a deal maker. So he would have some sort of like space for negotiation with Putin, maybe like, but with Biden, uh, the space for negotiation is very limited, right? Already Democrats have uh, alleged that, you know, uh, Putin and Russia have, you know, helped put Trump wins the election, 2016 election. So uh, this is also one of the things. Also, I think, uh, as you said, as you, I think I totally agree with that, uh, that, uh, you know, Biden, Biden administration, they don't have clarity over, you know, how to handle this situation. But I think uh, the Russian troops... Uh, they were stationing there for like months. It's not like they're stationed for like just uh, one or two months. They are they're stationed there for months, like more than six months, right? And uh, and I think uh, you know I was reading somewhere that uh, you know uh, not all of them are Russian troops. Actually, they have contracted or hired troops. Some of them are like you know contract military. Uh, you must be knowing that the Wagner groups and everything like you know they have so. They have hired actually. There might be like you know complete invasion or not. Like or they, Russia might have edge, but uh, to 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 take over Ukraine totally, I think it's a big uh, it's a big. So I was saying like you know so uh, as you said clearly you know so Biden administration they don't have uh, clarity over how to handle this issue. Uh, took over the charge from there. That time also there was a lot of pending issue globally. You know you have uh, you have. 
Afghanistan issue there, you have Iraq issue in the Middle East, also there are a lot of, you know, things going on. And then things are coming one after another and they don't have clarity over it. Uh, at the same time, Russian troops are there for for a, for a longer period, more than months, right? It's more than six months. So, and they have hired contract military as well. So, uh, I was reading somewhere that, uh, you know, Russians, uh, they have... Uh, they have strategic advantage, of course. They they might invade. They are highly uh, possibility of military escalation, but they might not capture the whole of uh, Ukraine. Their aim is more sort of in Eastern Ukraine, right, where they have uh, supports for public support, right. And in the Western Ukraine, they are not pro-Russian even. I can see a, a potential partition of Ukraine probably being a more likely uh, end result of a Russian annexation. So what we might see is something can you, can you still hear me by the way because we've cut out again I think uh, okay good great uh, so yeah one, one potential scenario is we see something uh, a little bit like what happened in uh, Georgia in uh, 2008 I believe where, where you have have the establishment of um, uh, sort of separatist nation that isn't officially a part of Russia, but is essentially dependent on Russia. Um, I could see that happening in eastern Ukraine. That there is quite a large population there that speaks Russian um, and has a sort of warm sentiment towards Russia. Um, I mean, Putin recently. Uh, released a fairly lengthy essay talking about uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia, and also Belarus as essentially being uh, one nation. So, um, of course, Ukraine has a strategic importance to Russia as well, and we, we can touch on that in a minute. Uh, but it also has a, a historical importance to Russia because Kiev... Uh, was the birthplace of the first uh, Russian state, if you like, in the in the ninth century, um, with the Kievan Rus. So the, the, there is a matter of national pride as well for the Russians. Um, it just really remains to be seen what they do. I mean, you also mentioned the uh, lengthy amount of time that the Russian troops have been uh, moving uh, around the border region there, and that in itself is, is quite interesting. Uh, I've had some people uh, say to me, oh, well, you know, the, the Russians have lost the element of supply surprise because their, their mobilization has been picked up. But the thing is, with this many troops being moved around and this many military assets, particularly they've been moving um, armored vehicles and artillery, that there is no way that uh, moving troops in the scale couldn't be picked up. It was inevitable that they were going to be um, picked up by, by uh, Western intelligence services sooner or later. And the Russians would have factored this into their calculations. They, they knew that the, um, their troops were going to be picked up on the borders there. Um, the fact that they've been there so long brings up uh, quite a few um, interesting points. Firstly... The Ukrainians, and by extension the West, do not know if and when the Russians will actually attack. Secondly, they don't really know where from if they will attack. Um, we know that the Russians have moved assets to the northern border of Ukraine, 
which is a little bit near to Kiev. Uh, and they also could potentially move uh, more of their forces into Belarus as well, which would open up the entire northern flank of Ukraine. Uh, some naval assets as well likely to come from Crimea and also uh, sell through the Mediterranean to the Black Sea uh, there as well. So that opens up uh, another front on the south. Uh, and then, of course, also there's that, that eastern front as well. So if Ukraine was invaded it, in a conventional manner, um, they could be facing a three-pronged attack by the Russians. Um, but you also mentioned the more uh, unconventional assets the Russians have, so uh, private military contractors from Wagner Group, um, and also they have the separatists that have been fighting there in yeah. the east of Ukraine since 2014. Uh, so the Russians, they, they could move these chess pieces uh, as well. They, they could intensify, renew uh, the fighting in, in the east of the country. And what they might be hoping for is if their um, non-conventional forces escalate the fighting there and the Ukrainians react with an offensive of their own, um, what the Russians might do to then justify a conventional invasion is uh, make an argument that they're acting defensively. Um, I think the Russians have issued about 500,000, I believe, Russian passports to people living in eastern Ukraine. So they could make an argument that they're defending the Russian population there, and, and that would be their casus belli, if you like. It would be their, their yeah. cause for war. Um, so, I mean, this kind of fits the pattern of hybrid warfare that the Russians have been employing for the last sort of 10, 20 years now, um, which the, the West have definitely struggled to, to overcome, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think like you just touch upon this 2014 thing, you know, since 2014, Russia was actively involved in this sort of, you know, insurgency and all sort of thing, you know, UK. So I think 2014 was important uh, timeline, I would say, you know, from there, uh, you know, uh, their government was sort of uh, overthrown and it's called actually called coup by a lot of people. So do you agree with that? Like, was that coup? Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people feel that America did that, you know, that coup. Uh, so people were uh, pro-European Union and they just wanted to join pro-European Union group. But uh, so, you know, America did that coup and then, you know, you have new governments coming in and then all the new governments are very much pro-America and, you know, uh, hostile to Russia, their interest and their... So, uh, so what's your take on that? <coughs> Yeah, I think it's um, it's really important to look at this from the Russian perspective because um, it, when we're when we're looking at strategy, obviously a lot of, uh, we look we look at things from our own prejudice, from our own perspective. Yeah. So, for example, based in the UK, I might look at this from a Western perspective. So, it's important to try and put yourself in the shoes of you know a general or a policymaker sit, sitting in the Kremlin and try, and try and really understand the strategic culture and history of Russia, so that you can kind of um, get an appreciation for, for how they're seeing things. Um, unfortunately, what happens a lot of the time in strategy is, let's say you're sitting in Washington and you're a, a US policymaker or you're a member of the military, you'll, you'll think, what would I do if I was like Russia, but I'm still an American in my head, if that makes sense, yeah. which is one of the problems. So <clears throat> I think in many ways, 
although it may appear to uh, Western minds that this is an offensive action by Russia, I suspect many Russians see what's going on in Ukraine right now as defensive. Um, Because since 1997, there's been quite a rapid expansion of NATO eastwards, um, right up to... um, Russia's border, and, and the Russians have said quite clearly, actually, that um, Ukraine becoming a part of NATO is is a red line for them. Um, so they very much see the NATO expansion eastwards as an offensive uh, strategy against Russia, and and this has a long a long historical precedent in in Russian history. This is this doesn't just go back to the Cold War, for example. Um, Russia has a long history of suspicion towards pretty much anything coming from the West. So first they had to repel uh, an invasion by uh, Charles Twelfth, I believe, of Sweden. Okay. Uh, then you have Napoleon of France. Uh, and then, of course, you had the, the Germans in the Second World War yeah. um, as well. So Russia sees NATO as very much meddling in its own backyard. And... I think to them, they, they see this as, as pushing back against this. Um, what, what Russia would like, uh, ideally, I think, is a return to the kind of pre-1997 uh, NATO borders. So the, the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, um, <clears throat> and uh, Latvia, for example, they, they wouldn't like, they'd like to see them leave NATO, they'd like missiles to be removed from Poland at the very least um, they really just want to roll back that, that curtain uh, on NATO and in their minds at least there is a defensive element to what they're doing in Ukraine uh, but but I think like you know in the dominant mainstream media you know you see more sort of the western perspective only right you know and there's a dearth of uh, eastern or the Russian perspective I think because of the language issue I would say uh, much more and also uh, you know Russia has like you know a policy of like keeping uh, keeping things at bay and not disclosing it uh, openly to the public I think they have this historical you know uh, trajectory I would say so there's nothing new. But but yeah, I think I, I take your point, you know, from a Russian perspective, this might be sort of, you know, the Ukraine thing they see as a defensive thing, right? So how do you, like, you know, in general, the Europeans see uh, Putin, right? Uh, because I think <laughs> in Europe, Putin is uh, considered as, like, some sort of... <laughs> uh, I, we all know, like, he's a former KGB agent and all sort of thing, but... Uh, I think European, especially the, in the UK, uh, you know, Putin <laughs> has some sort of like really dark image, right? So, like, could you just throw light upon it, right? Yeah, there's, uh, <laughs> there's certainly the uh, kind of Western caricature of, of Putin as a evil authoritarian. Um, which is not not surprising, really. The the, the Russian system of, yeah. of government will see very different to to what happens in uh, most of Europe, with the exceptions of like Belarus, for example. Um, the, the the problem is is that when 
sometimes these perceptions can cloud um, decision makers at the top. Yeah. You know, when you're morality is a dangerous thing. It, it, it's very important, but also I think it can, it can cloud decision making um, because as much as you may uh, disagree with your um, adversary, uh, so to speak, you, you do need a certain level of empathy to actually understand what they're doing and what they might do less. Uh, and uh, Next. And I mean that purely in a practical sense. Um, I suppose the other interesting thing about Putin is he's one of the political constants in, yeah. in Europe. So obviously, in democratic states, you have elections frequently chosen governments, elections, yeah, and so forth. Whereas Putin, <laughs> with the exception of like Angela Merkel, yeah. um, really has <laughs> been one of the few forces that's, that's been around for decades now on the continent. Uh, so th there's a certain level of continuity that the, the Russians have that the rest of Europe uh, doesn't, with, like I said, maybe the exceptions of Angela Merkel staying in power for as long as she did, and uh, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I example Lukashenko in Belarus, but then Belarus is very much separated from mainstream Europe and is, is still very much in that Russian sphere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, Putin's image is, is quite quite an interesting one in the West. I mean, he, for example, he, he probably has more memes than the majority of other leaders as well. Like, he has a sort of almost cult internet following, I think, even in, even in Europe and the US uh, as well, which is... is I don't know if I have anything particularly pertinent to say about that, but it, it, it's only interesting that, you know, you'll see, I don't know, a slightly ridiculous internet meme of Putin riding a bear on, on like, Western media. You're not really going to see that of Macron, for yeah. example. So, it, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly... There's certainly an interesting gap between how Putin is perceived in the West and how other Western leaders are perceived. Yeah, I, I recall like in the like few years back, maybe two, three years back, there was there was incident that directly linked to the UK, you know, the poisoning of uh, some Russian agent in UK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a huge like... Uh, you know, yeah, so, I mean like, you know, and then you know, the diplomats were, you know, uh, called off from, you know, both the countries, right? So it was a huge thing, right? So I think U UK in particular have some sort of like, you know, difficulty uh, with Russians more. I think Germans, they are sort of, Germans, they they play very well with both Europeans and Russian, you know, they, I think it's because of their, their need for the gas and everything, especially in America, right? So, but other than that, I think UK uh, have some sort of like, you know, some sort of weird equation with Putin in terms of, like, you know, after that incident. Do you agree that? Yeah, um, it, it's, it seems to be that the, the UK is the prime destination for Russian assassins over the past sort of 20 odd years because we've had the Alexander Litvinenko assassination. Um, I think he was poisoned with plutonium in a hotel restaurant, yeah. if I recall. Uh, and then you had the Skripal poisonings <laughs> as well. Um, and the thing is, like, the... Uh, there's been some disagreement about whether this uh, these operations came directly from Putin or whether these were um, from the um, 
just from Russian intelligence services themselves. But the Russians have made very little effort to hide the fact that they were uh, conducting assassinations here. It, it almost seems like they they had enough plausible deniability to say it wasn't them, but they also at the same time, I think, wanted the West to be aware that actually it was the Russians conducting these assassinations because effectively they were saying, we can walk into your country and kill one of your citizens and you're not going to do anything. Um, because the thing is, like you don't, you don't assassinate someone with plutonium if you want to keep it on the quiet. It's because how many people have access to that kind of material? <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, good thing, yeah. And then from uh, Russia's perspective as well, I think uh, it's interesting now that Merkel's gone because <laughs> I think from Putin's perspective, Merkel, because Merkel wasn't powerful for so long, she was someone that Putin... Uh, it may have seen as an adversary, but at least respected as a serious leader because she'd been in power for so long. I mean, obviously, if you're, if, as a world leader, if you're in power for 20-odd years and you, you've got that kind of authoritarianism behind you, you tend to, I think, maybe I'm projecting here, but you tend to regard democratic leaders who have, a, you know, between four and ten years in power as, you know, fairly insignificant when you've been sitting at the top of the top of the, the pyramid for 20 odd years so it, it'll be interesting to see how Germany and Russia interact now that Merkel is gone because I, there was a certain degree of respect that Putin had for Merkel I think yeah I mean I, I totally agree with that even uh, you know Putin uh, he himself like can speak a very fluent German right because he was deployed in eastern Germany right so I can I can totally understand the Merkel love for uh, Putin and Putin, they both they both are like made for each other, sort of. Yeah, they. Um, one of the, the stories that always makes me laugh is that um, apparently Angela Merkel is terrified of dogs, <laughs> um, and I cannot remember what breed of dog it is that Putin has, but it, it it's a very large Russian dog that probably looks a bit more like a bear. I mean, this this thing Putin's dogs are massive. And Putin knew that Merkel doesn't like dogs. And he very <laughs> deliberately decided to just leave his dog in an office, just sort of staring at her whilst they were having a meeting, sort of as a, I don't know, as a, as a power play, or maybe just for a bit of a laugh. So I, I think I think that says a lot about <laughs> his, his character, that he'd um, quite deliberately do that. Yeah, I think. Uh, but, but yeah... Uh... They, they do have a like very good equation, you know, uh, individual. Uh, even like you know uh, this German saga that happened in India, you know, the devil chief. Europe is actually divided. They are you know German are thinking something else, UK is thinking something else, and then France is sort of leading, uh, you know, the European Union and is calling for peace or whatever initiatives the European Union should take. But the Germany is totally absent, you know. I think uh, this new uh, chancellor, Olaf Scholz, he's also very uh, unclear about, you know, his policy and the Biden policy. I think uh, there's a lot of resemblance, right? Unclarity over how to handle this issue. And uh, I think Merkel left in a very, uh, I think, haphazard manner. Uh, in the sense, like, you know, there must be some sort of continuity, but, you know, uh, in the present circumstances, I think uh, the German foreign policy has to change, you know. But the dominance of Germany in the European Union is not going to be, you know, with kind of this with this kind of, you know, uh, reluctance to involve in this the biggest security uh, changes that happening in 
European like you know just it just in your back Germany has quite a, a difficult uh, position in, in Europe I think because mostly due to the the wealth their economy the demographics they naturally assume a position of sorts of leadership within the EU but there are a number of things that complicate that um, obviously you have the fact that really all the EU states are, are really supposed to be equal and obviously they're supposed to maintain their sovereignty so Germany doesn't want to appear as if it's overreaching and then also you have Germany's very profound discomfort with its own past in the in the 20th century uh, obviously during the Second World War which I think really inhibits them from uh, taking leadership on certain issues I mean the German military for example is incredibly underpowered relative yeah. to its economic might yeah. which is why you often see France who uh, you know the French don't necessarily quite have the economic clout of the Germans uh, but they don't have the same hang-ups that the Germans have after the Second World War and the, the French tend to take much more of a, a leading security role especially now that the British have left the European Union because before that um, security relationship was, was mostly driven by the, the French and the British together um, but you certainly see the French a lot more proactive for example in the Mediterranean with their security arrangements um, and then yeah you, you mentioned also the the general disunity in the European Union and that has certainly been a problem when they've had to react to uh, crises um, abroad so for example the, the migrant crisis really exposed the very deep fissures in the European Union because we really had like three camps you had the wealthy northern European uh, northern and western European countries which uh, were happy to take in a certain amount of migrants um, but also wanted burden sharing across the EU and then of course you had the southern nations like Greece and Italy who were bearing the brunt of the migrant crisis these were the countries of arrival they were also very much in favour for um, burden sharing, burden yeah. sharing. Yeah. But, then, but then you have the Visegrad group uh, you know, namely Hungary, um, uh, the Czech Republic, and so forth, who are vehemently opposed to bringing migrants in. Um, perhaps uh, in Poland as well. Perhaps unsurprisingly, because of their own history. So Hungary, Poland, etc., were uh, previously dominated by the Soviet Union. So they they have the, they they certainly have much more suspicion towards the outside world, and they also um, don't have that history of integrating foreign populations within their culture that France and the UK uh, and Germany have had that with their experiences of mass migration. And I suspect also the Visegrad group have probably looked at what's happened in countries where there's been mass migration. Um, and it, like all things, there's benefits and drawbacks to that, and they, they've probably looked at the drawbacks and thought, we'd rather maintain a sort of homogenous population. Uh, so there's... there's Probably more than any other topic, the uh, issue of mass migration has really divided Europe. Uh, there's, there's just not much agreement there at all on what to do. That being said, the response to the border crisis of Belarus has actually been fairly coherent. Like so far, even Germany has supported Polish efforts to, to um, uh, fortify their border, essentially. Um, same with Latvia. 
uh, sorry, not Latvia, Lithuania, um, as, as well. So, I don't know, may, maybe there'll be a little bit more of consensus on that, but it's, it, it's too early to say. Okay. Yeah, you know, I I I think refugee crisis is like you know it's it is a turning point you know from from there I think you know it's just open you know the the voids or whatever the differences the European countries they have it just open up to the world right you know the kind of problem they have so do you also see the Middle East right or uh, do you do you see the kind of uh, politics or the kind of things happening there do you also cover that Middle East. The firing, the big, the big powers, you know, the big centers of power, the Saudis, the Iran, and the Israel, and uh, because uh, all the outsider, the great powers are also involved, the Russia, US, all of them are involved. So, uh, you have this continuous strife going on, you know, the attack on uh, the the whole lot of thing happening. So I think like uh, I'm I'm sort of trying to link with this materialist because Iranian president, uh, he visited Russia recently very recently uh, this uh, during this whole crisis and uh, they are signed a deal with uh, russia uh, it was it was a defense deal and and uh, that they have also uh, you know uh, russia actually sold this uh, sukhoi su35 uh, almost like 39 40 jets so it was a huge defense it almost amount to uh, 10 billion dollars 10 billion US dollars so uh, it's a huge thing and uh, also aside by you must be knowing the Iranian negotiation going on over the nuclear league you know Iranian already they are sort of uh, attacking on the US bases in Iraq and yeah and also uh, they were trilateral naval exercises uh, in Medit uh, in Indian Ocean, North Indian Ocean, must be knowing like very recently. And actually Russian are holding a naval exercise throughout the throughout the big oceans and seas, the Mediterranean also in the Atlantic also. Uh, so so do you see like, you know, Iranian or like, you know, the, this trouble is not going to stop in Ukraine and it's going to, you know, having snowball effect everywhere uh, especially in the middle east because middle east you just need a spark and it just all started bursting up right so uh, the movement you know the ukraine crisis started it of course reaches to china and then a taiwan you know attack on whatever hybrid warfare or something happened it also reaches to the middle east right so i think iran is going to be a very leading player and of course it is backed by the russian right and then you have Saudis and Israel on the one side, backed by the U.S. So, how do you see that this power sort of thing is like going to be snowball effect, or like I'm sort of hypenating it? Yeah, um, I think what's interesting about the Middle East is it's the place that you can see perhaps the most clearly how the overall global world order is changing. You can see the consequences of the um, American withdrawal, if you like, from the Middle East. You can see the consequences of uh, a transition from a uh, unipolar world order where the, the US uh, sits at the top of the uh, global balance of power to a more multipolar world order where you have multiple great powers um, at play. I mean, we've certainly seen Russia, to some extent, um, filling some of the power vacuums where the 
uh, the US has at least somewhat withdrawn from the Middle East. I mean, it, 20 years ago, what Russia has done with their support for uh, Assad in Syria, I think, would be fairly unimaginable. Um, there's definitely a lot more room for other actors to play a role in the Middle East. And then, of course, you also have this Cold War, if you like, between um, Iran on the one hand and Saudi Arabia. Um, and what, what's interesting with that as well, you mentioned Israel, is that um, Israel actually has a fairly good, at least relatively speaking, relationship with Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states now, because yeah. the Gulf states see uh, Iran as a bigger threat yeah, exactly. than Israel. Um, <laughs> I mean, sure, the, the leaders of the Gulf states aren't going to publicly endorse Israel in any way because their domestic populations obviously have a lot of uh, uh, warm sentiment towards the Palestinians. Uh, but strategically speaking, th there is a, an informal... Uh, I maybe won't go as far to say alliance, but th there is a kind of understanding that Israel shares interest with the Gulf states in deterring Iran. Um, yeah, I, I think like the Gulf state becoming more surrealist and more pragmatic these days, you know, <laughs> even in, in yeah, yeah. yeah, so even with, with, with relation to India, you know, like, so you see a lot of bonhomie with the India, which previously was not, you know, and they are more inclined toward Pakistan uh, due to, of course, the culture and religious reason. So same goes for the Israel also. They see more sort of, you know, uh, you know, interest lining with the Israel. The transfer of technology, the defense technology and everything. And of course, Israel and they both share the same sort of enemy, right? Uh, the, which is Iran. Part of that reason as well is because the, the, the US are um, a less dependable ally now to the Gulf states. Uh, I mean, one of uh, Biden's first foreign policy moves was to uh, limit the amount of weapons that were being sold to the Gulf states because there was concern, particularly in his party and, and the Democrats, that those weapons were being uh, used against civilians in Yemen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think they're in Saudi Arabia and, and the other Gulf states now. There's this realization that you know Uncle Sam might not be around as much <laughs> as we'd like, uh, which is probably why they're more prepared to to work with Israel and other regional actors. Um, and then at the same time, you kind of have this wild card, if you like, which is Turkey um, getting more involved again as well. So on the one hand, you have uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, who are the, you know, uh, the most long-standing players in the region, but also Turkey kind of returning to its old Ottoman yeah. um, ground, if you like. The caliphate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that that will certainly make things interesting obviously you've got the the turks operating in northern syria now um as well yeah uh so you know you sort of have a bilateral yeah it's almost everywhere i mean like in azerbaijan and armenian crisis also it's there the turkish the turkish drones If I was a, uh, a strategist in Yerevan, mm -hmm. I would not be particularly happy right now. Because um, obviously the, the current war in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, went very badly for Armenia. Um, 
I think the, the issue the issue is Armenia is strategically speaking like one of the most vulnerable countries yeah. because it's slap bang in the middle between Azerbaijan and Turkey. Turkey. Yeah. Um, and I think you know the Turks and Azeris find the existence of Armenia between them to be very inconvenient. Uh, and I, I could see Armenia being a greater risk if Erdogan and successive Turkish leaders really adopt this kind of like pan-Turkic movement uh, and also this neo-Ottoman idea um, because the, the, Armenia is just surrounded by hostile actors and they don't really have any uh, close friends, at least not nearby like the, the they 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 share some affinity with the Iranians, but the Iranians also have quite a large um, population that's originally from Azerbaijan. So Iran treads fairly lightly around the issue. Um, if you're Armenia, like your your best bet is to try and get Russia to help you. But the yeah. problem is with Russia helping you is that you end up Russia just dominating you and you end up becoming a satellite of Russia anyway. So uh, the I know they're a very, very small player in the game, um, but Armenia is an interesting case because it, it's, if you're, it, it's one of the countries where I'd say like really hard-nosed realism is still very much a fact of life because like survival as a state is questionable if you're Armenia just because you're surrounded by so many enemies. Yeah, I've been like more of, I think, problematic than Israel, right? You know, what Israel used to be in 50s and 60s when it established between the Arab states and now Armenia, I think it's in very, uh, with respect to the Christianity, you know, uh, Armenian uh, should receive sort of help from Western world because, you know, so many Western countries, they, they do connect with the Christianity thing, the religious thing and, you know, to help the Christian country and all sort of things, so... I, I think in that sense, you know, and also if I go by the Huntington uh, clash of civilization, you know, <laughs> that, so if Turkey and Azerbaijan, they both indulge in and they both are like Muslim countries, Islamic countries, and then you have like uh, harming this Armenian, the oldest, one of the oldest Christian, uh, you know, country. So do you think like the West will indulge it? Probably not. Uh... I, I think because there is a certain amount of uh, sympathy for Armenia in the West, um, partially because of that, that Christian background, but also partially uh, because there's a, there's a small but fairly in, um, influential Armenian diaspora, particularly in the US. Um, but the, pro the problem is, is that uh, Armenia isn't really strategically important enough to any Western nation for anyone to really stick their neck out and yeah. do anything to help them. So they're just very isolated. The other issue as well is they really belong more so to the Orthodox Christian tradition, which is actually quite alien to um, Catholic. Western and Northern Europe. There's definitely a lack of... Um, collective feeling between the Protestants and the Catholics, which is very much seen as Western European, and then the, the Orthodox, which really belongs to the world of Russia and Armenia and the Balkans. Um, I mean, sure, the, the, the Greeks, for example, also being Orthodox uh, and also sharing a very similar culture to the Armenians, 
have a great deal of sympathy towards the Armenians because also they, they share the same adversaries, particularly Turkey. But, but Greece isn't really going to do anything either. They, they can't really do anything. Um, so, yeah, I think really Armenia, Armenia can only really look towards Russia for protection. And, and that's certainly not a perfect solution either. Yeah. Uh, I think since you talk about like Armenia is not that strategic interest uh, to the West, uh, so they might not indulge it. So, so do you think like you know Ukraine, uh, you know, I mean, other than this Russian connection thing, do you think that Ukraine also has some sort of strategic, uh, you know, uh, value in itself? Like you know, if, if I track down, you know, its sort of development after it got uh, separated from the Soviet Union. The country not has just, uh, you know, grown the way it's supposed to be, you know, and it's it sort of stagnated and, I mean, you uh, you can't just talk about, you know, Ukraine um, as some sort of developed country or some sort of, you know, so I think Ukraine uh, has transformed into a strategic uh, asset for the West or something. I think it's, it's, it's a questionable thing, right? I think other than Russian connection, which is, you know, uh, linked to the great power and uh, uh, that's why, you know, uh, West is so much keen on it. Other than that, I don't think Russia, uh, Ukraine has some sort of strategic uh, value in itself. How, how do you see that? Yeah, I, I certainly agree that it, it's not the, the most important place geopolitically for the West. As in, and I think that explains probably the lack of clarity because the West, the United States, Europe, they have this idea with NATO that NATO is an open door club, if you like, and if you meet the criteria, you can join. And likewise, I'm sure in Brussels, they'd very much like to expand the EU out to Ukraine, obviously adding to the, you know, your population demographics. It, it empowers the EU in some way. Yeah. That being said, like you, like you've mentioned, Ukraine is just not the hill that anyone in the West wants to die on. It's just not important enough. Um, the closer you get, the, the further out of Eastern Europe you push westwards, obviously the more uh, political will there is to push back against Russia. This kind of thing actually is something that concerns the Baltic states as well, because um, there are people in Estonia, for example, who wonder whether if Russia attacked them, NATO would actually live up to its obligation to defend them. Um, because Estonia also is not that strategically valuable. But the difference being with Ukraine is that the United States and the rest of NATO have an obligation to defend them if someone else, likely being Russia, would attack. Um, but then again, you could make the, the argument, I mean, Estonia is tiny, other than the fact that it borders the, the Baltic Sea. It's not that strategically important. So I think that this is an interesting hypothetical. What if what was going on now wasn't happening in Ukraine, but was happening in Estonia? Would the political will exist for the NATO members to fight a very potentially big war with Russia for the sake of Estonia? Where Russia deploying assets or, or cooperating with Venezuela and, and Cuba as, as part of uh, uh, the Ukraine crisis. I don't really see that going anywhere. 
Okay, so so your uh, take is like you know it's going to retain there in the European or the Eurasian uh, region, or it's not going to be uh, reaching to the Latin America or maybe like in the Middle East, uh, Middle East as well, right? Do even for the Middle East, you are sort of skeptic, right? Yeah, so I mean, there there, there are some interesting ways that uh, the Ukraine crisis could touch other regions. So, um, for example, the Ukraine is actually a um, very important exporter of agriculture. So um, I have some figures here somewhere. The, the top global exporter of corn, barley, and rye is the fifth largest exporter of wheat. Um, so uh, there are some countries in the Middle East and North Africa that are actually relatively dependent on Ukraine. So, for example, back in 2020, roughly 50% of all the wheat consumed in Lebanon was from Ukraine. Uh, Yemen imports about 22% of its wheat from Ukraine, and Egypt uh, imports about 14%. Now, with, with these areas being uh, as unstable as they are, a knock-on effect, also the other thing, the other problem is a lot of this agriculture is actually based in eastern Ukraine, so if a war sparked off there or there was disruption to the agricultural output, that, that could really um, impact the supply chains and food being produced there. Um, Yemen, which is obviously in a state of crisis of its own right now, if 22% of their wheat doesn't arrive, that could, you know, contribute to a humanitarian crisis there. So th there's certainly um, potential for, like, some pretty serious knock-on effects elsewhere in the world that you wouldn't maybe uh, expect uh, from this. And I don't think that many people have really looked into this because obviously... The, the focal point really has been on the on its effects in Europe. Uh, as of now, I I I, uh, I do writing about like this Ukrainian crisis. I mean, uh, from a multifaceted angle, I would say like this snowballing effect. I think I, I'm pretty much interested in like uh, how it is going to uh, you know uh, affect the other theaters of the world. Like you know, other like the volatile uh, the volatile reason. I think Middle East, of course, is one of them. I I think. A lot of people are focusing on the China-Taiwan thing uh, with regards to in connection with this Ukraine, but I also want to connect with the Middle East. Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I look forward to speaking to you soon. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Have a good night.